Revelation 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter again. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. (coughs) I always remember... um, as a student um, in Birmingham, I was involved in the Christian Union there, and um, I had the privilege of being involved in, in inviting speakers, and the kind of people who would come along to our, our CU events, and would come along week by week, and um, yeah, I was on the team for various reasons that, that was, was in, in charge of inviting people along and seeing if they would come and asking them to speak on particular passages and that kind of stuff. How could they encourage us as a CU to to live out our witness on campus. And of course you've got your favourites. 
um, when you when you want to invite people. You, the kind of people that you, you put down first and you shape the series around them even. And it, it took me a while to work out why, but there was one guy who came whom I appreciated the most through my three years at uni. He, he probably wasn't the clearest or the, the snappiest or the sharpest or the trendiest, um, most eloquent Bible teacher, but he was certainly my favourite. And it took me a while to work out why. He was a pastor from a local town, from Derby. And yet, as he came, he came and taught us from God's word, with, with experience and with a pastoral heart. He was someone who had been through it himself, somebody who, who helped others in their walk with the Lord. And lots of the younger, brighter Bible te- teachers who had the kind of snappy headings and the whizzy PowerPoint and all that kind of stuff, didn't have that. They didn't have the reality of experience. You can't fake that kind of thing. It's very powerful. I don't know about you, but I'm always more likely to listen to someone whom I think has, has lived it and been shaped by it themselves rather than simply having read the commentaries and got it out of a book and being very bright. I think it's striking then what John describes himself as in verse 9, as we reach these next few verses in Revelation. You see, he doesn't describe himself as an apostle, which he could. He doesn't describe himself as a prophet, which in a sense he could. He doesn't describe himself as an elder, which he could. In verse 9, his his authority, if you like, comes from him standing shoulder to shoulder with them. He he has a solidarity with them. He is a a brother and a companion. He's not writing as a sort of distant academic theologian from ivory towers. He's writing as one who, with them, has suffered and is suffering for his faith in Christ. He's one whose knees are grazed. He's one who's been through the mill himself. He knows the personal reality and the challenge of what it is he is writing. The fact that it will hurt. He's gone through some of what they are going through and will go through. Which I think makes us more likely to listen. Because he's a companion. He's a brother. But how does he describe it in verse 9? Do you see... It continues, the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. It's an interesting triad that he he sort of places together, a little triangle of suffering and kingdom and endurance. It shows something of the reality of the faithful Christian life. Wherever, whenever, it's real. It's the small print. It's not particularly popular to modern ears. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. I think we live in slightly scary times if we think that the peace that we currently enjoy is something something unusual for, for those who follow Jesus. If you look down the ages and if you look around the world, our situation as we sit in it at the moment is one of relative peace. We have brothers and sisters from years gone by and brothers and sisters around the world today for whom life is much harder. 
But as we said in weeks gone by, it's, it's not necessarily something we should take for granted. It's, remember, the metaphor we've used is we're, we're, we're climbing flights of stairs, and it feels hard being a Christian climbing those flights of stairs, because it feels like everyone's coming down, and perhaps there are more and more people coming down, bustling us and making us feel uncomfortable. And, and maybe even the steps that we're going up are, are feeling a bit steeper than they were. Also, John says, I'm a companion with you in your suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. The first two, I think, are two sides of the coin that it is to follow Christ. It's the daily Christian experience of those two things, suffering and kingdom, as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. The two are, are linked and joined together, superglued together almost. It constantly seems to surprise us but the Bible is very blunt and very plain about these things. Wherever you open it, you see this. You see it in the experience of the Old Testament prophets. You see it as you read the Gospels and hear the words of Christ. You see it as Paul writes to Christians, encouraging them to keep going. You see it as John writes. There's a sense in which the Bible is like a stick of rock and wherever you chop it, you see something of the reality of suffering and perseverance and persecution for the people of God. Of course we want one without the other. We want kingdom. But the two come hand in hand. I take it they come hand in hand because the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ are always going to rub off against each other. It's always like sandpaper. It's always hard. They're always in opposition. But because we share in his kingdom, we'll say we share in his suffering part and parcel. We, we ought to expect it but we always seem a bit surprised and confused and like we don't really want it. Which then is when the third aspect comes into play. So you've got kingdom and you've got suffering. So what do you need? What's the next, the final corner of the triangle? It's endurance, patient endurance. And do you remember we've said that Revelation is a, is a book about endurance in lots of ways. It's, it's one of the key reasons that, that Jesus is given this message, who then sent it to an angel, who then sent it to John, who then writes it down and people like us get to read it, so that we will endure. Do you remember what a, the apocalypsis means? It means an unveiling. It means the curtain being pulled back. It means a, an uncovering on reality. We get to see what's really going on in the world. And everything looks so tangible around us. But Jesus says, don't forget what's really happening. Don't forget the reality of the spiritual battle that you're going through. Don't forget the reality of God's power. Don't forget that, that he's won. And one day all will see that. And so as, as we have this curtain opened, and we see what's really going on, so Revelation is a profoundly practical book for people like us, for people who need encouragement in the midst of Suffering, persecution, potentially more suffering and persecution. For people like us who are people of the kingdom. There's a couple of examples from um, Revelation itself as to how this works out. A couple of, if you're the sort of note-taking type, then um, here's a couple of verses for you uh, perhaps to, to write down or to look up later. Let me read them for us. So Revelation 13.10 if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is killed by, with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance 
and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Revelation 14.12 Again, there's more suffering going on. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. You see, because we are part of his kingdom, so we will suffer and therefore we're to be those who patiently endure. It's hard to patiently endure, isn't it? It's hard to keep going. And so Jesus says, look through the curtain and see the reality of what's happening and what has happened and what will happen. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I guess my question then for us this evening, it's not a particularly nice question, it's the kind of question we like to duck, but is this idea of suffering and patient endurance built into, for us, what it means to follow Christ? Is that part of our daily understanding of what it means to live for him? Are, are, are we doing that? Are we prepared to do that? Why? Why not? There's something very human about wanting to avoid hardship and difficulty. And Don't get me wrong, those are good things to avoid. We have pain receptors to help us know we should take our hands out of the fire. Those are good things to do. But in wanting to avoid hardship and difficulty as well, that can be a really bad thing for us. Because it can mean, if I'm honest, it can mean I'm a coward. And I duck it. And there's an opportunity or there's a, there's a situation where I need to stand and it's so easy to be quiet. Or so easy just to kind of move out the way slightly. But John's very clear. He is a brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. You see, it's striking. John doesn't tell them what's coming so they can avoid it. He doesn't tell them what's coming so they can run from the hardships, but rather it's to to warn them that it's coming, and so they know that it's coming, so they're not surprised by it, and then to give them the the perspective and the truth that they need to keep going through it, to make sense of it. Kingdom, suffering, patient endurance. I'm aware that a number of you few of you are from Oxford um, University and you've got a, a week coming up of events. I'm just struck that these three words are really helpful words for all of us, but perhaps particularly in a sort of intense week or two of, of events and outreach and looking outwards. Because it can be really easy to suddenly get really busy during these weeks, such that we kind of avoid the opportunity to take friends or to go along to stuff ourselves. I, I found that as a student... Suddenly I had an awful lot of deadlines that all kind of piled up on the wrong week and I couldn't really go to as much as I wanted to. Just a coward, really. But these three words are really helpful because it's part and parcel of the normal Christian life. It's suffering and it's kingdom and it's patient endurance and it means sticking the neck out and saying, fancy going along or chatting to people or getting into that conversation that you think, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say. Well, go for it anyway. Trust him to use you. Suffering, kingdom, patient endurance. John's suffering is, is very real and is tangible. We've, we've said it before, but it's clear there in verse 9. He is on the island of Patmos. <coughs> and if you look at the island of Patmos, 
It's a beautiful island now. There are beautiful blue, blue skies and blue seas, depending on when you take the photo. And there, there are beautiful kind of white villas halfway down the island, but at the top of the island itself you can see a castle, a prison. And it was a place where, where the Romans would keep people who were considered to be difficult and dangerous, where they would be removed from kind of civilization. It was the ancient Alcatraz, or Guantanamo Bay. And John is there, shoulder to shoulder, as a companion and a brother. Why? Do you see it in verse 9? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's not there because he's a criminal in some way, except in that speaking the word of God and the testimony of Jesus may put him in that category. He is there for a message he is there because of what he believes and what he says. I know I've um, <coughs> spoken about it a lot over the last few months, but a trip to America I had opened my eyes to the reality of um, suffering. Because I was there with a number of brothers and sisters gathered from all over the world and from all kinds of places, including people who had had to be removed from their context, incarcerated because of their faith because of their vocal faith, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Not, not quite to the extremes of placing them on islands, but in periods gone by in prison, with Bibles being removed, confiscated, burned. So it's a pattern often repeated in church history. Governments realise that God's word is powerful. The message of the gospel is subversive. And so, they remove the word of God, whether the people speaking it or they ban the Bibles themselves. It's interesting as you speak to perhaps Chinese students at the moment in the UK who come over to, to the UK and want, want to find out about the gospel because they can't openly back home. Because the government knows it is a powerful and subversive message. So they come to the UK and think, well, why have you guys forgotten it? It's a pattern often repeated in church history that the word of God is removed from a situation by a government or an authority and yet what comes next is, is unique. Verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he lists them. If you, if you don't know Revelation, as you flick on to chapter 2 and 3, you see a letter for each of the seven churches that he lists. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And he, he comes on the Lord's Day. It's an interesting underused title for our generation. First day of the week, I take it, a Sunday, when the Lord comes to visit him. And the Spirit, verse 10, presumably it's the the spirit of verse 4 that we saw in weeks gone by, proceeding from the throne of the Father, gives John these visions, or a vision, or puts him in a place where he can see these things, and then he knows what to do with them. And he knows what to do with them because he hears the voice like a trumpet, end of verse 10, which, which I take it means the voice of a king. From the verses to come, we, we know it's the voice of Jesus. 
And the visions that he receives are, are not just pers- personal visions for him, they're, they're visions for, for the seven churches. You see them listed. Interesting, if you plot them on a map, I, it, probably there's a sense in which um, they're listed in this order, so, so a, a courier could easily de- deliver the letters to them, so it kind of starts in the south, and then works north and north, and then kind of down and back to the south again on a particular trading route. And they're very specific messages to specific churches. We've said this in, in weeks gone by, but, but it's important in Revelation, numbers aren't random. And so because there are seven churches, seven's an idea of completeness and fullness and perfection, so I'm convinced that the words he writes to these seven churches are, are, are for specific context and for every context. For the people of God here, but the people of God. This is with all scripture. It's living and active and powerful. And God speaks to a time and to a place and to a people. But through them, to all of us. Wherever and whenever we are. And so John hears this voice like a trumpet. And he turns to see who's speaking. Verse 12. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. So what did he see as he turns? He turned around to see the voice but then he sees seven golden lampstands. I guess our question is, at least my question was, what's a lampstand? It's the kind of word that I read a lot in Revelation and I never really thought about it before. We can't explicitly be sure about this, but lampstands first appear in the Bible in Exodus 25 as part of the tabernacle complex. That They're what's sometimes called menorahs. So I wonder whether it's, 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 a, it's a similar thing to a menorah where you've got like a candlestick, symmetrical but with seven candles coming off. God gives very detailed instructions about these golden lampstands placed in the tabernacle They were to never go out, always to give light, night and day, giving forth light and heat. A clear, visible picture of the presence of the Lord, his blessing among his people. So I wonder whether lampstand is a loaded word. It's not just a a light, but actually we're meant to think tabernacle. We're meant to think light going on day and night. God's blessing his people. And the key comes a bit later in the passage as well, in verse 20, which is part of the reason I read the whole chapter again this time. Because we we see what the seven golden lampstands are in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there are seven lampstands for seven churches, each one representing God's blessing and light and, and presence. Perhaps there to be a light in a dark world. But more than that, he sees someone among them. A figure in the midst of them. It's the language of intimacy. It's someone dressed like a son of man in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. 
And if you were here last week, you might remember the Son of Man from Daniel 7. came up in verse 7, spliced together with Zechariah 12. We're going to spend more time in this Son of Man idea next week, because, as I said at the very beginning, John begins to, or Jesus begins to, mix the metaphors, stretching our, our understanding of who the Son of Man is. And he describes him as having white hair, which is, which is unusual. Divine. But for now, just notice he's wearing a robe down to his feet. I think he's like a priest. I think that's the best thing of what's going on. It's someone who, who's like a priest who can deal with sin, who has dealt with sin, which is why he's able to be among them. Someone who has a power over sin, which is why he can come and both encourage and challenge them about their sin as he writes the letters to them. But do you see the point? But by his Spirit, the risen Lord Jesus is present among his churches. John turns to hear the kingly trumpet voice and he sees someone dressed as a priest. He hears a voice of authority but sees someone who looks like he can deal with sin. We're going to leave it at that point. We need to come back next week to see how it continues. But just to say one thing, what a huge encouragement this image ought to be for us. Because it can, it can be hard, can't it, to, to live for Christ. It can be hard to see through the eyes of faith. And Maybe sometimes we see God at work and we're encouraged by growth in friends or perhaps people even becoming Christians and starting to follow Jesus themselves. You experience him in some way yourself, but at times you can just think, is he, is he really there? We're not just making this up. It, does he really care? The, the stairs seem steeper and steeper and more and more people seem to be coming down. And we can look around and see they're kind of mid-twenties in a drafty room on a Sunday night with an out-of-tune piano. Is this it? Yeah, I think with a verse like this one might... I'm so encouraged and comforted because we we read of the reality that the risen Lord Jesus is among his people. Churches even who who are being persecuted, oppressed, who are experiencing firsthand the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. And yet among them was one like a son of man dressed as a priest and yet with a voice like a king. He is there. And he does care. Indeed, he is is here with us now. Let me pray for us.